Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, the national free market think tank. Uh, this is episode 100 and something of the podcast. I never remember the episode numbers, but uh, anyway, not a very new podcast anymore, but for those of you just tuning in for the first time, uh, basically what we do here in the podcast is I invite an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been newly published or recently published. And, uh, you know, on a, on a topic or a person or something like that that we uh, hope you would enjoy a discussion about. And then at the end of the podcast or, you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you uh, go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the uh, best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Professor Andrew Lambert, and Professor Lambert is Lawton Professor of Naval History in the Department of War Studies at King's College and a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Uh, He is the author of many books on naval strategy and naval history, including Sea Power States, Maritime Culture, Continental Empires, and the Conflict that Made the Modern World, Nelson, Britannia's God of War, The Crimean War, British Grand Strategy Against Russia, 1853 to 1856, uh, the Challenge, Britain Against America in the Naval War of 1812, and Admirals, the Naval Commanders Who Made Britain Great. And lastly, he is the author of The British Way of War, Julian Corbett and the Battle for a National Strategy, which was published last December by Yale University Press, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, uh, Professor Lambert, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, my pleasure, Tim. My pleasure. Oh, no problem. So what made you want to write this book? What was the genesis of it? Uh, I mean, this is the centenary of the death of Julian Corbett, um, you know, who is someone I had, you know, if you sort of read histories or anything to do with uh, naval warfare, naval history, um, who's mentioned uh, quite a bit in, you know, histories of the... uh, Great War and the, the the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, uh, but he's not very he's not too well known, I would think, uh, especially in the United States. I mean, even as I was looking at his Wikipedia page the other day, and it's sort of uh, slim for somebody of his importance and stature. I mean, like I think like the new Taylor Swift record. Like the Wikipedia entry is probably about like five or six thousand words longer than the one on on Julian Corbett. So, so yeah. So who is uh, who is Julian Corbett? Uh, why is he so important? And what made you want to write the book? Okay, um, let's start with the why, I guess. Um, back in the late 1970s, when I was a student uh, in the Department of War Studies, where I'm, where I teach now. My professor was also the professor at the Naval Staff College, and he was reintroducing Corbett to the Royal Navy, which had pretty much forgotten everything that Corbett had done for them. And from that point on, I realized that this was the critical thinker in the evolution of British thinking about war, uh, where for most countries, and, and the U.S. is like most countries, war starts with land operations. For the British, a small country, island-based, uh, secured by the sea, strategy starts at sea. And Corbett is the man who runs that debate 
through the, the late 1890s, right down through the First World War, and then tragically died in 1922, really at the height of his powers, and as he was working through the First World War to explain what had gone wrong with Britain's war. The British memory of the First World War is of continental chaos and, and mass casualty events. And these are entirely unprecedented in British history. The British have never before assembled a, an army on that scale and launched it into Europe. And so if you say the war in Britain, everybody knows which war you mean, and it's the First World War, and it's because of the massive scale of human casualty. So Corbett is saying this is wrong. This is not how we function strategically. We operate from the sea. We exploit our maritime advantage to make up for the fact that there aren't that many of us uh, and we have no business going toe-to-toe with very much larger continental military powers like Germany. Um, and so the, the battle he fights is, is a battle for a maritime strategy, not a naval strategy of the sort that Alfred Thayer Mahon talks about, but a naval strategy, a, nas- a maritime strategy, which is a national product. It's the, the sum element of the economic, industrial, political, diplomatic, naval, and military effort of the state. But the presiding concept is of and from the sea. So the purpose of the British Army isn't to fight German armies or French armies. It's to blow up German, French, or Russian dockyards. And the Royal British Army has a long history of attacking other people's naval bases, because if you burn other people's bases and ships, they don't have the ability to contest your command of the sea, and you can bankrupt them. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a strategy which uses power across the spectrum to secure maritime dominance as the basis of an economic warfare strategy, which is going to crush the enemy in ways which do not require you to put large numbers of men into the fighting line uh, and get them killed. Historically, the British put their men to work making money and hired foreigners to fight their battles for them. Um, and this seems to have been quite a good model. Mm-hmm. So Corbett himself, uh, born in 1854, uh, and as we said, died in 1922, he was the son of a very successful property developer. And by the time he went to university, his family was already fabulously rich and he would never have to work uh, if he didn't want to. But instead of that, he secured a first-class law degree. He qualified as an English barrister, that's a courtroom advocate, uh, and practiced as a lawyer. Uh, Then he ran the family estate for some time and after his mother's death, he became a novelist. Uh, He wrote four very successful Victorian novels with really quite striking themes, three of which are very much about the sea, and the other one is is certainly very geographically interesting. And then in the early 1890s, just as naval history became respectable, he was recruited to become a naval historian, and he then becomes the presiding figure in the integration of naval history, which up till that day was really just an educational tool for navies, a way of getting naval men to think about why their job is important and to be inspired by the heroic deeds of their precursors and turning it into a branch of the rising academic discipline of history. And he is going to be the the bridge that links university history with the teaching of naval officers. And the department I work in today is still doing that. We're very much in 
in that model that he created, we need high-quality, academically valid historical study to inform the education of people who use history as a way of thinking about the future. We don't want to leave that process um, to people who are irresponsible about the past. The past has to be accurate if you're going to learn anything from it. Mm -hmm. If you have bad history, you take bad ideas from it uh, and your processes are necessarily corrupted by that. So Corbett is working in the university sector. He's working in the, the naval educational sector. And then from 1910 onwards, he's writing official history for the British state, first of the Russo-Japanese War and then of the First World War, where he runs the entire official history project for Britain, covering all aspects of the war, naval, military, economic, maritime, um, intelligence-based, things like this. So he's, he's actually the presiding genius of the attempt to capture the experience of war in 1914-18 as a means of understanding how Britain needs to prepare for any future conflict. And his last great battle, um, having, I think, persuaded everybody that maritime strategy was indeed the right answer, was to deal with the attempt by Woodrow Wilson to take away Britain's right to use economic warfare. So Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, point two, absolute freedom of the seas in wartime, was deliberately designed to destroy the British Empire as, as a strategic power by enabling neutral powers like the United States to continue trading with whoever they liked and therefore undermining Britain's primary weapon system. Corbett produced all of the key state papers that were used to rebut that argument and when Wilson conceded that the second of the 14 points had to be abandoned, he actually paraphrased Corbett's arguments very closely. So Corbett is doing that. He's also critically involved in the reconstruction of the British Empire as a much more liberal, progressive organization. And he wrote the original found, founding draft for the League of Nations. Yeah, um, actually... Uh since you just brought it up, what exactly is uh, progressive imperialism, which uh, it's a major theme of his writings? It is. Corbett is a, lib is a political liberal. That's a big L liberal. As, uh, we had two parties in those days, the liberals and the conservatives, who you can imagine what their political stances are. Corbett sees the empire as a work in progress, as an evolving relationship between Britain and its many and disparate uh, territories around the world. So by 1900, Australia is self-governing. The British have said to the Australians, look, you can run your own country. We, we have every confidence in you doing that in a liberal, progressive, democratic way. Uh, and by the way, you might as well defend yourselves as well, because you know, we don't need to defend you. You're perfectly capable of doing that as well. And Corbett sees the British Empire evolving into what he called a sea commonwealth, basically a free association of liberal progressive nations in the Anglosphere who are trading with each other. And the thing that will unite them is the ocean and the ability to use the ocean safely in peace and war. So they will have essentially a collective naval presence to guarantee the ability for, let's say, Australia and Britain to continue trading despite hostilities with third parties. He doesn't see the British Empire in 
as a, let's call it Roman, Russian, or Chinese empire of territorial control and domination. Mm-hmm. It's very much a progress point between the 18th century acquisition of empire and sometime in the 20th century, the bonds of empire will be loosened and changed. And we see that today. The British Commonwealth does exist. It's not quite perhaps what Corbett imagined, but it is a free association of liberal progressive nations who come together on issues of major international politics, but also have the world's second largest sporting gathering. Commonwealth Games are second only Mm. to the Olympics as a world sporting event. And that's a free association. You don't, nobody is compelled to belong to this. And two of the members of the Commonwealth at the moment were never in the British Empire. As far as they're concerned, the Commonwealth is such a good idea that they've joined it freely, having been colonial possessions of other powers uh, with which they don't have very good relations. Before we get uh, further into the book, uh, before I forget about this, I wanted to bring, uh, make sure I brought it up, but you start, you start the book itself with, um, uh, a, a diary entry, or maybe perhaps it was a letter. I can't remember. Um, that diary entry. Diary entry that uh, that Corbett wrote to about a dinner he had with T. E. Lawrence, who is better known to most people as Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, why did you, Why did you start there? Why did you start the book there with with that uh, with that dinner? Um, as as you said at the beginning, a lot of people don't know who Julian Corbett is. Mm-hmm. Um, so this book is doing two things. It's looking at what I think is the single most important strategic contribution to strategic thought by a British writer, uh, period. Um, probably the greatest commentator and developer of, of Clausewitz in the English language, but still not a familiar figure. But a lot of the ideas that he's laying out so elegantly in, in his fine prose are shared by others and among them the man who is most famous is thomas edward lawrence also lawrence of arabia who is waging the kind of war that corbett is convinced is the right way for britain to wage war lawrence's campaign in arabia you you won't get this from the film but it's entirely dependent on the royal navy Mm -hmm. All of his supplies come from the sea. He gets extensive fire support from Royal Navy warships. And just occasionally he goes aboard one of them to have a hot bath, which apparently is quite a good thing to do after you've been in the desert for a month or two. <laughs> um, Lawrence understands that his whole campaign is, is a sea-based campaign. It's not a continental campaign at all. And it culminates in the capture of coastal cities on, on the coast of modern-day Israel and the Lebanon. So he is having dinner in Corbett's flat with another of Corbett's friends, and they're talking about a wide range of things. Why is the quote there? It's there to establish where Corbett sits in the intellectual milieu of early 20th century Britain, and to make sure you don't think he's some lone voice in the wilderness. He is right at the heart and center of, of mm. British political and strategic life. And they're talking about medieval castles. They're talking about the campaign in the desert. They're talking about the way the war had been waged in Europe and their their shared horror at the massive waste of human life involved in First World War combat. Uh, And the the common understanding that there was a better way and that both of them would write about that better way in their own very different ways. So... Lawrence will write a great book about the First World War, and Corbett was writing one when he died. 
Wasn't Lawrence's uh, dissertation on Crusader castles, I believe? It was. Um, Lawrence basically traveled around the whole uh, Crusader area and and wrote a serious piece of work on Crusader castles and then found himself working with British archaeologists in various bits of Mesopotamia. And that's where he was when the First World War broke out, by which time he had acquired serious local knowledge and very good language skills, uh, which enabled him to carry out the Mm. campaign that he did. Yeah. And uh, Corbett, I mean, beyond T.E. Lawrence, his social circle, uh, it's he knows a lot of what we would now call uh, famous people (laughs) like like he's hanging out in, in Rome, you know, just kicking about with Mark Twain. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, dinner parties with with uh, Beatrice and uh, Sidney Webb, which I guess isn't that surprising for that time. But uh, but, you know, it's funny. Mark Twain just signed a quarter sign. Excuse me. Kind of seems like he just pops up everywhere. Yeah, (laughs) um, he is extremely well connected. Yeah. Um, You know, and and uh, to go back to the Taylor Swift reference earlier um <laughs> at the time of his death his best friend is Sir Edward Elgar who is the mm-hmm. musician of the age in in Britain a great great composer and and the two men there's a meeting of minds there they you know they they share a lot of things they're both part of the Edwardian uh, British elite but they're both very much their own men they're, they're not dependent on other things so Corbett is heavily engaged in the worlds of art and music, literature, politics. Uh, he could have been a member of parliament if he'd wanted. His, his brother was. And he, he was offered the chance, but he, he turned it down. Uh, he had better things to do with his time than listen to other people waffle on about not very much. Mm-hmm. So, yes, he is enormously well-connected. He lives right in the heart of London. Uh, if you know where Harrods is in London on Knightsbridge, uh, he's actually just do. around the corner. Yep, he yeah. lives just around the corner. Um, in the same building that Julian Assange was holed up in for some years. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and he walked to work in Whitehall um, across Green Park uh, and through the horse guards. Where And on his walk to and from home, he often met the movers and shakers of, of the contemporary world. So, yes, he's he's very much in the middle of this. Sydney and Beatrice Webb, they're running this the world's leading sort of think tank of the period among civilian academics, the so-called the coefficients. Coefficients, yeah. Corbett's part of that. Um, he's his great friend Halford Mackinder, the geostrategist who puts forward the, the concept of a heartland thesis uh, in, in 1904. He's also part of that. So are several key members of the, of the government. Um, you know, really interesting place for him to be, but not a, not surprising. You know. So he's very much connected in. And one of the things I've tried to do with the book is to make sure that we see this man in this live context mm-hmm. rather than reading him as a, as a desiccated fossil of a, of a dead age who was ignored in his lifetime. He certainly wasn't. He was enormously well respected by all of the people he was working with. So the that, that opening piece of prose is very much about locating him in mm-hmm. a particular strata of British society at the time. And it, it's a gateway to so many of the things he's going to do in his life. It also emphasizes how well traveled he was. Yeah. So he uh, had been to Arabia. He'd stopped off at Aden on his way to India. Right. Uh, but more, so, 
sort of on that, um, and you sort of brought this up a little bit, but understanding his contemporary world is uh, it's un- important to understanding him, the man himself, and his thinking, and his so his mental world is is going to be shaped by the I guess you call it like the late Victorian period. He's a he's a late Victorian romantic uh, basically. Uh, yep. But what is what is the Britain uh, of that period like for someone of of his class? Corbett has many of the the attributes that we find fairly well spread across his contemporaries because of his circumstances, personal wealth, social status. He doesn't have any need to work, but he does work, and he works remarkably hard because that's his responsibility. As a member of a privileged elite and an educated elite, it is his social duty uh, to contribute to the overall well-being of society. So the work he's doing for the Navy, for the government, he has no need to do this. He, As I said earlier, he's very, very well-to-do and could have just relied on his private income, much of which came from the proceeds of international commerce and business. He was Mm. invested in a wide range of international um, economic activities. But he doesn't do that. He works six and a half, seven days a week most weeks, and during the war pretty pretty much always six and a half days a week uh, and quite late hours because it's his duty. So he has a a service ethic. He has a a sense of commitment to to the national cause. He has the value system of his age as well, so he is remarkably restrained in the way that he he expresses his emotions. I've read as much of his correspondence as, as is possible to find, and there's hardly an expression of emotion in it. Um, he, it's very very calm and very. I would say buttoned up. He's he's restrained. He's restrained in in his emotions to the extent that he, he suffers several nervous breakdowns, uh, moments of crisis, because he has literally no means of of unpacking no those emotions. Um, his his favourite nephew is is killed in the in, in an air aeroplane over the Western Front, 1915. Um, he, he has no means of dealing with that, and he, he collapses. He recovers, but he's he's seriously unwell and perfectly incapable of working for some time. Um, and it's, that's not the only occasion. So very, very restrained approach to life. But there's, there's a lot more humanity boiling up under the surface uh, than he, he's going to let on. His letters to his wife, and I think I've read all of them, um, they could be letters to his sister, to his friend, um, to a colleague. Um, there's there's nothing in them that gives gives away the relationship between the two people. Mm. You wouldn't know that this was his wife. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a, a bit earlier ago too. Uh, he's very well traveled. Um, so he, he travels around the globe and uh, throughout the empire. Spent some time in the United States, uh, all over the place. Uh, he was a war correspondent in uh, Sudan, in the Sudan with with Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, of all people. And uh, yeah, but but how uh, how would how would that uh, that travel um, 
the the how would that travel around the empire and around the world affect his thinking and his writing going forward? Yeah, I, I think it's enormously important because in the last half of the of the 19th century, India has a this central place in the way Britain sees the world and certainly sees its own world. So having been all the way out to India um, on the main steamship route through the Red Sea, Suez Canal, and been round India, he'd been to the sites of the, the Indian mutiny uh, from the 1850s. He, he'd visited the British Army in the, on the northwest frontier, what we now call the, the tribal zone in, in Pakistan. He talked to people who were dealing with some of the issues which are alive today, um, Muslim fundamentalism, uh, issues like that. Uh, He'd seen the great ports of of the British Empire. Uh, he'd seen the fortresses of the British Empire. He travelled around Algeria, so he'd seen how the French did it empire differently, and he wasn't much impressed. The travel gives him a sense of the strategic distances involved in global strategy. You know, you can do global strategy with an atlas on your desk, but that doesn't mm-hmm. really tell you what the distances are. You, know, you have to travel them. You have to know how long it takes you to get from London to Bombay uh, if you want to understand global strategy. And if you've done that in the best contemporary way, you've got some sense of what that communication lag is. So his ability, I think, to, to conceive of, of national strategy as global and imperial rather than as, as parochial and local is very much influenced by that. So travel does broaden the mind, and I think it broadens the intellectual horizons of, of strategic thinkers as well. Hmm. And uh, his, so he's a civilian. He's not, uh, he doesn't serve in the Royal Navy. Uh, yeah. ever, but does, does his being a civilian, uh, is that an asset or a hindrance in, uh, in his uh, develop, developing of his strategy? Does it, uh, yeah. does it help or does it hurt? Uh, yeah, I, I think you know, he's he's the bridge between an age when war was a subject to be written about by professional warriors, um, um, sailors and soldiers, to the modern age where much of the writing about war is done by professional civilians. And of course, he's not a professional civilian in that sense, but he's certainly not a professional military man. I think it's an enormous advantage. Um, so much of the writing that he's working alongside his his peers are uniformed professionals mm. and they have some besetting problems when they come to analyze war um, if you've been in the army the navy or the air force long enough you tend to assume that that's something that's normal right uh, but for a civilian that's not normal so Corbett doesn't assume that war is normal or that armies navies and, and the like are, are always necessary being a liberal, he has progressive social views. Most mid-career and senior officers have relatively conservative political views. There are exceptions. His friend Jackie Fisher was a very radical political actor. But Corbett is a progressive liberal, and that puts him on the other side of the big political debates of the Victorian and Edwardian era from most of the people he's talking to and working with. So he sees civilian status very much as giving him a different perspective and he's perfectly happy to say yes i'm i'm not from the same group as you and that makes what i have to say more significant because i'm going to challenge some of your assumptions 
uniformed writers on war writing for other uniformed readers on war do not challenge their assumptions. Corbett does challenge assumptions. He says, you need to look at this differently. You need to see this from the mindset, not just of another military professional, but also from that of, let's say, a colonial politician. Mm. You know, we need to understand how the people who are running Australia view this. Uh, and they're not soldiers or sailors. They're elected politicians. So we need right. to know how that works. And, and I'm the vehicle to do that because I do know how elected politics works. I'm a member of a political party uh, and I've taken part in the political process. That is critical because, as Clausewitz says, war is a continuation of politics by other means. Right. Uh, and Corbett understands exactly that if you don't get the political context, you'll not know what you're fighting for or how to bring the fighting to a conclusion. Mm. So the, the great contrast there is he's not in a uniform, he's not a social conservative, and he's looking forward to things changing. He's not thinking about making them st st preserved in, in perpetuity. So that, that willingness to, to undertake change is critical. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned before, he has legal training with the law school, becomes a barrister. Uh, what, talk a little about the importance of his legal training to his later work as a historian and, a, and as a strategist. Yep. Corbett studies law at Cambridge University, Trinity College, very, very eminent place to be. He gets a first-class degree, and he then qualifies as a barrister, which is a very practical set of qualifications, courtroom advocacy. What it gives him is the ability to develop and deliver complex arguments uh, in effective, accessible prose. And that's something that a lot of writers on war and strategy don't have. They blunder around trying to make themselves clear and often don't <laughs> succeed as well as they would have liked. If you compare his standard strategy textbook to Alfred Thayer Mahan's book of the same year, uh, which was called Naval Strategy, one of them is light and elegant and incisive, and the other one isn't. It's, it's a lumbering, ponderous production which takes you through hosts of examples, not all of which particularly useful, uh, and, and ends up with a fairly narrow focus. Corbett is always talking about where war and politics meet. Most people writing about strategy are just talking about what a war looks like. So the legal training is critical to his quality of exposition. He can frame an argument, and his advocacy, his ability to develop and deliver argument is absolutely peerless. He's an outstanding advocate. If you read the position papers that he writes for Admiral Fisher, for the British government, uh, right down to the end of his life, these are wonderful, short, incisive pieces of writing which sum up an, arg an argument, uh, deliver the key points of the evidence, uh, and are essential to winning key debates. His contribution to the Versailles peace process, uh, securing British Britain's position there, completely ignored by almost everybody, but essential. And this is work he's doing in the evening when he's finished his day job, bringing together all of the arguments that are necessary to secure Britain's vital interests at this massive peace conference. And he's been doing this for the British state from 1900 onwards, getting the data, getting the evidence, getting all the material, and then boiling it down into the absolute essence 
and delivering it in a way which cannot be ignored by writers in uniform, readers out of uniform. So in always targeting the audience, being aware of who is making the decision about this. So he's writing pieces that secure Britain's legal rights at sea for both the Hague Peace Conferences. He's dealing with fundamental changes in the way officers are recruited for the Royal Navy, changes in strategy and technology. And he's always thinking about his audience. So there's that precision and skill and the argument in the delivery and in the targeting. So uh, Corbett's books are are precision-guided missiles. They're designed Mm. to attack a particular target, and they're using all the skills that he's honed in his legal and in his literary experience. Mm. Those four successful novels he writes, that's a great way of, of building up your literary skills. So his history books are always beautifully written. Uh, and as a result, they are significantly more accessible than most of the history writing of that period. Right. And you, um, glad you mentioned Alpha Theory Mahan, uh, because if, if there's one person, you know, people know, uh, naval strategists that people know from this period, it's, you know, most likely him and, uh, his book, you know, The Influence of Sea Power Upon History, that seems to be, uh, a book that everyone of, importance in that time period uh had read and took seriously and seemed to have an opinion on uh what did what did corbett think of uh of mahan's thesis and and what did he think of the influence of sea power upon history or the, the yeah. lessons it, it it uh contained for great britain yeah i I think Corbett is, is an early reader of Mahan. He, he, he read the book in 1891, the year after it first appeared, uh, and was in contact with Mahan until Mahan's death in, in 2014. And Mahan actually republished one of Corbett's essays in one of his own collections, uh, which was, suggests that they, you know, they were on the same wavelength when it came to this issue of the ability to use economic warfare at sea. Uh, both Mahan and Corbett say this is absolutely essential. Uh, Mahan essentially refused to follow government instructions from the United States government at the first Hague Peace Conference because he was violently opposed to the American position. Um, and he adopted the position that the British held. And that was one of the products of his strategic writing. He understood that in order for sea power to be effective, it has to be able to attack the enemy's economy. For Corbett, this is the basis of all effective maritime strategy, and Mahan understands that as well. The main difference, and Corbett points this out, and Mahan wouldn't have disagreed, Mahan is selling naval power, not maritime power, to a a very large continentally-sized nation, which is always going to be dominated by the military. The United States is is a continental military power, which has a large navy. Britain is a small offshore island, which in Corbett's day has the world's biggest navy and a very small army, um, because they're very different places. It's not possible for the United States to be a small, agile sea power because it's enormous, um, and its resources are such that it's not going to have to use the relatively weak methods of sea power um, to secure its aims. You know, the end of the Second World War isn't America controlling the Atlantic. It's American troops marching through Germany and, and landing in Japan. 
Um, you know, American power is military and it's continentally based. And the Navy's job is to get that power from America to the place it needs to be deployed. The British can't do that. They don't have continental power to deploy. So they have to operate at sea. So Britain is maritime and, and Mahan and the United States in the modern era are naval. They see the world differently. The sea is absolutely central to British culture. It is not central to American culture. Um, there are bits of America where the sea is quite important, but there are lots more places in America where the sea isn't visible in any way, shape or form. Um, that's not the case in Britain. You can't be more than 95 miles from the sea anywhere in the British Isles. Um, yeah. And the sea has this, this enormous place in British culture and identity, which reached something of a of, of an apogee around the time that Corbett is, is really getting going at his writings, the 1890s, sort of high watermark of, of British maritime power and British maritime identity. So in 1888, we have the 300th anniversary of the defeat of the Spanish Armada, which reminds everybody in the English-speaking world you know, that Protestantism and, and liberalism were important things and that the Inquisition had to be stopped. Um, and then in 1905, we get the centenary of the Battle of Trafalgar. Um, so there's these two huge anniversaries, and Corbett's engaged with both of them. And then the First World War comes along. But they establish that the maritime, the naval, are absolutely existential to, to what Britain is in ways that is not possible for most other states on Earth. You know, if you're Russian or Chinese, um, you simply can't see the world like that. You know, you have these enormous imperial territories uh, over which you rule, and, and that is the center of your concern, not the ocean. The ocean is, is auxiliary. Uh, it's it's the, the relative smallness of Britain that enables it to be a maritime power. And that is a conscious choice. The British, well, the English, decided not to be tied to the continent five, six hundred years ago, and they created an identity and a politics that enabled them to do that. And Corbett's liberalism and his navalism are products of that process. You know, without Henry VIII creating a navy and, and Elizabeth I defeating the Spanish Armada, you don't get Julian Corbett 300 years later. So the English have created that identity. And what happened in the United States after independence is a steady march away from the sea. You know, the, the men who signed the Declaration of Independence all lived within a pretty short run of the sea or a major river. A um, hundred years later, the legislators you know, included people who'd never seen the sea. You know, it's, it's a very different world. So you know, that's the key difference, I think, between Mahan and Corbett. It's a key difference between Corbett and pretty much anybody who writes on sea power you know, outside uh, the British tradition. You know, it, it isn't... It is an identity which is not normative. Corbett makes this point. You know, it, it's not normal to see the sea as your identity because people don't live at sea. You know, we live in communities, we live in houses, we have we have families and and and, uh, and the places we live. They're terrestrial. Even even seafarers have houses and families. They don't live at sea. They work at sea. So to invest this with this enormous cultural significance that it has in British identity is, is very unusual um, and necessarily very conscious and something that has to be constantly refreshed.
So he joins the the Navy Record Service in 1893, and you write that uh, the NRS uh, would become a central pillar of his life. Um, yep. it, it, it and historical writing uh, provided his life with a purpose. So what is the NRS and uh, and why would it become the central pillar of his life? Why yep. was it important? Yeah, the Navy Record Society was founded in 1893, and it, it's a joint venture between the Director of Naval Intelligence of the Royal Navy, uh, Royal Navy Captain, and in those days, the Naval Intelligence people were the chief strategic planners. We didn't have a separate strategy department, so they're the people who understand who the enemy might be and are thinking about how to engage them. And the growing naval historical community, led by Corbett's friend, Professor Sir John Lawton, um, who has made that bridge between the academic study of history and the serious study of naval history as a tool for educational purposes. The purpose of the Record Society is to do what many contemporary Record Societies are doing, which is to capture and process the evidence of the past in a way that makes it useful to the present. So what they're publishing is collected editions of material from the past. Um, uh, the first two volumes are about the defeat of the Spanish Armada and providing them with a commentary that enables contemporary students to understand their value to the present day. So it's history for the present. Target audience is the Royal Navy's education. So it's a civilian-military combination with a very particular target. And it's it, it's continued doing that job um, right down to the present day when it's still running, still producing outstanding work in the field of academic naval history. Um, Corbett's legacy is, is very much alive and, and well. But he uses that to, to draw the academic community into naval service. Mm. He's getting academic experts to come into his field and to use their skills to produce things that will help educate future naval officers. So most of the senior officers and mid-career officers who fought in the First World War in the Royal Navy had been taught by Corbett. You know, he knew a very large proportion of the Royal Navy's senior and, and middle-ranking leadership uh, from, per, from working with them in the classroom. He'd taken part in their war games. He'd, he'd taken part in, in, their, in their planning work, uh, looking at the future, and he was critically involved in the development of strategic thinking throughout the First World War. So the past is being marshaled and, and brought into service for the present. And ultimately, that's what the past is, is all about. It helps us to understand how we got here. Right. Uh, it necessarily doesn't tell us what to do next because you know, that's that's our job to make our minds up on that question. But we need to know how we got here. We need to know what those processes are, where we made mistakes, where we got things right, um, where the other guys had a vote and, and did something that that, you know, that countered what we were trying to do. You know, that's why we study history. Uh, it's not to tell us what to do. It's to help us think through the problems of today uh, in a better informed way. That's and that's what the Navy Records Society has been doing since 1893. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned he starts his literary career, I guess, with the with the fiction books, but then he uh, he moves into 
nonfiction into uh, historical writing. Naval strategy has those first couple books on uh, Francis Drake and George Monk, the first Duke of Albemarle. And then some early books that are the foundation of his career, mostly about the uh, 16th century, so Drake and the Tudor Navy, uh, the successors of Drake, and then the, the Spanish War. Uh, but the books that really make his name are, uh, he publishes in the first decade of the, of the 20th century, and those are uh, England in the Mediterranean, uh, Study of the Rise and Influence of British Power Within the Straits, 1603 to 1713, and then England in the Seven Years' War. Uh, tell us about those books, those two books, and how he developed his strategic thinking yep. with them. Yeah, these are the first two books that are products of his teaching with the Royal Navy's senior officer war course. So the Royal Navy says, look, will you come and teach strategy and history? And we'd like you to look at this bit of history. And Corbett, when he starts, is working on the Mediterranean book. He's also giving lectures on this subject at Oxford University. So that book is a, is a almost a transitional piece as he's picking up his work with the Navy he's got this project which he's using as part of his teaching the Mediterranean book is is critical because what he uses it to do is to establish that you can become a great power in Europe without having an army on the continent so when the British take command of the Mediterranean around 1700 by deploying their battle fleet into the Mediterranean permanently all of a sudden Britain has gone from being an offshore island to being a great power. Uh, the British now have enormous influence right across southern Europe, in Spain, in France, in the various bits of Italy. Um, they, they change the balance of power in the Mediterranean in the wars that are raging between 1688 and 1713. Naval power alone changes strategy. And Corbett cites a great line from Leopold von Ranke, where Ranke said, look, the beginning of the 17th century, the thing that really changed was these two new great powers turned up, the English in the Mediterranean and the Russians. And that changed the European balance. It, it widened out the European state system. So that book is about maritime power giving you major strategic advantage, political advantage, and it's certainly why England became a great power. The Seven Years' War book is I think the, the kind of standard that Corbett is setting himself, it's a serious discussion of what many in, in North America would call the French and Indian War, looking at the war in Europe and the global war in the Americas, in the Caribbean, in the Indian Ocean and beyond, and bringing that all together as a study of grand strategy. But ultimately, it's a book which, if you're a student on Corbett's course in 1907, you're going to read this book and you're going to cross out French and, and ship of the line and you're going to write in German and battle and, and dreadnought. dreadnought yeah. And all of a sudden, you've got the model for the strategic overview of your next conflict. Corbett is saying it, it's directed by civilians and he emphasizes civilian direction. It's not the military's job to make strategy. It's the military's job to advise it's the statesman's job, ultimately, to decide. And, and he highlights the importance of Pitt the Elder, the, the statesman who directs the war, and the quality of advice that he's getting from his naval uh, and military advisors enables him to perform extremely effectively. But ultimately, it's a political choice. 
And that's a model he's setting up because as a convinced liberal, he has no desire to see the army or the navy running Britain. Mm. So the, the statesmen have to make those choices, not the military. Um, and yeah. it's preserving the democratic process. Yeah, he so saw, those, uh, sorry to interrupt, but he yeah. saw conscription, uh, an expanded army like that. And then, of course, obviously the uh, sort of the expanded bureaucracy that's going to that, you know, conscription on that scale would necessarily entail yeah. as incompatible with a liberal political order, liberal, small L liberal political order. Uh, well, small and big, big and liberal. <laughs> um, modern, you know, in modern Britain today, liberal, yeah. the liberals are not uh, not significant political force, but um, you know they were the government from 1906 through to uh, 1916. Um, the liberals vehemently oppose conscription. They dislike armies because armies are led by conservatives. Um, they sort of tolerate the navy because it's less conservative than the army, uh, and it's not at home, and it's not likely to overthrow the government. So as a liberal, Corbett sees all of these things, but he also sees the strategic necessity of this. And The Seven Years' War is a book about combined strategy. It's a study in combined strategy. It's how to fit the army and the navy together to win a war. It's not about doing navy or army better. It's about doing combination better. So it's a maritime strategic textbook, and it teaches you what a war looks like and what the mechanisms are for running it in the British system uh, and how to bring it to a successful conclusion. And he would use that model to write about Nelson's great campaign of Trafalgar, mm -hmm. uh, to analyze the Russo-Japanese War, and he was well on writing up the First World War in the same geostrategic overview uh, at the time of his death. So that's the book, really, that establishes how Corbett is going to deliver his analysis it's that combination of serious historical scholarship and present-minded analysis. But it's not overtly present-minded. He doesn't mm -hmm. slip into the, oh, and this is what you do tomorrow uh, approach. He, co he continues to talk about what happened then. And he's, go he's leaving his reader to make that intellectual jump across into the, that interpretation. But it, it's implicit all the way through. Mm. And then getting to the Great War, uh, he's his idea of strategy of the the, the the British way of war is, I mean, for the most part, it's essentially ignored uh, in favor of a, of a more continental strategy, uh, and you know the the. <laughs> The deleterious consequences of, of that decision are, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of dead Britons. Um, but how, uh, why was was he not, uh, or why was his idea of strategy not uh, um, more popular with uh, the people making those sort of decisions at that time? The, the irony is that the statesmen per perfectly well understood what Corbett had said and, and were, in, were in agreement with him in, to a very large extent. Um, the senior mm. ranks of the British Army disagreed with him uh, because they, the only way they could see it being important was indeed to not do maritime strategy but to do continental strategy. So on the day the British declared war against Germany, instead of doing the logical thing, which would have been to ask 
the people who understood strategy for a discussion of how to wage war effectively, which would have ultimately led back to Corbett, uh, they assembled four government ministers and nine generals in a room. And when one of the ministers said, I think we should send the army to France, all the generals applauded. And that was the quality of the discussion. Nothing was discussed. The minister who recommended sending the army to France and thereby abandoning Corbett's strategy was Winston Churchill, who was actually responsible for the Navy. He was the first Lord of the Admiralty. Politically, it would have been his job to represent the Navy in this discussion, but as a former junior army officer, he spoke up on behalf of the army, and the only admiral in the room, who was the first Sea Lord, was his subordinate and was not in a position to challenge his his argument. That was Jackie Fisher, right? No, it was Prince Louis of Battenberg. Fisher almost... Yeah, uh, Fisher was not only out of office, was actually physically in Germany at the time uh, at a spa taking the cure. Um, Fisher would probably have exploded if, he, if he'd been in the room, but, but uh, Prince Louis Battenberg didn't see it his, as his business to countermand his political superior. You know, you know what that's like when a politician says something stupid and the military man standing next to him just nods and looks mm-hmm. rather, rather embarrassed. <laughs> uh, that's what happened. And the British government never changed that approach. They, the ministers realized they'd made a mistake, but they hadn't got the courage to change their policy. And Fisher and Corbett worked very hard to try and change that strategy over the winter of 1914-15 and put forward a compelling argument about how the war could be won in the British way by taking command of the Baltic and completing the blockade of Germany. But the soldiers protested and the politicians lacked the the backbone to take them on so we ended up with the war being run by soldiers who were quite happy fighting a german war against the germans somewhere in france but of course the first world war was already settled by december 1914 the british won that very easily following corbett's strategic outline and by december 1914 the germans had no access to the rest of the world their economy was downgraded, their food supplies were collapsing, and they were left to try and fight the whole of the world from a European base. And ultimately they lost, and they would do exactly the same in the Second World War. Mm. If you want to win a world war, you have to control world trade, and the Germans couldn't do this in either war. And at the moment, I don't think anybody else could, could do it against a Western coalition led by the Americans. Yeah. Well, uh there was some, uh, as far as I understand, British strategy. It seems to be that uh, one of the big things is uh, for the British. Uh, basically, you want to keep uh, a balance of power on the continent. You don't want yes. one country becoming too successful, and you also don't want the uh, what are called like the the low countries, uh, Belgium, the Netherlands, uh, but specifically those two, and Luxembourg not so much, but specifically those two from falling to a hostile power uh, because of the threat that that would then lead to the British homeland uh, in the English Channel and the North Sea uh, with the enemy having access to those ports in Belgium and, and uh, you know, Rotterdam and Antwerp and, and the Netherlands yeah. and all that. So, um, uh, so I guess there was some rationale was because the the germans were actually in 
Oh, yeah. uh, in Belgium at the time, uh, the Netherlands yeah. was neutral, but, uh, you know, I guess fear of the Germans, you know, running over those, uh, those Belgian ports okay. or those channel See, ports the, in the, in, in the yeah. northern France too. Well, the, the strategy since 1814 had been that if the French invade Belgium or after the, after 1870, the Germans invade Belgium, uh, a British army will go and secure Antwerp. Mm. You know, when the Franco-Prussian war broke out in 1870, the British government mobilized 50,000 troops, assembled a fleet, and sent a diplomatic note to Paris and Berlin and reminded both sides that if they crossed the Belgian border, they would be at war with Britain, and that this was nothing to do with a war they would be involved in with the other hostile party at the time. They would merely be at war with Britain over Belgium. Mm. And both sides very much respected the Belgian frontier all the way through that conflict. What the British failed to do in 1914 was to send the same message to Berlin and Paris, but mainly for Berlin's consumption, and to send the fleet to sea and point it towards the Baltic, which is something they had done in 1905 during the first Moroccan crisis uh, between Germany and France. Um, British fleet went into the Baltic and the Germans backed down over Morocco. It's very obvious and very easy. The British knew how to do this, but the government in 1914 failed to act. And when they sent the army, they didn't send it to Belgium to protect Antwerp. They sent it to France to join the French army, which handed over control of Britain's grand strategy to French soldiers, which is absolutely unprecedented. Britain had never done this before. Um, there was no reason to give the French the first control over how Britain waged war. And as a result, the British couldn't get themselves out of this mess without a massive diplomatic battle with the French. And the result of that was that the Germans eventually, in late September, October, captured Antwerp. Uh, and then the, the ports of Ostend and Zeebrugge, which is a massive problem for Britain throughout the rest of the war. Mm-hmm. So it was strategically and operationally incompetent at the very best to do this. Sending the British army to protect Antwerp would have blocked a, French, a German invasion going all the way to Paris because it would have held a flank on the German army and prevented it advancing. Mm-hmm. It was a really simple strategic calculation but the soldiers were so committed to getting into the fighting because they genuinely believed the war would be over in six months and they were frightened they might miss it. Yeah. Uh, as it turned out, they, they had four and a half years to think about what they'd done uh, and they didn't miss it at all. You know, I'm only sitting here talking to you because my grandfather was badly wounded in the First World War rather than killed. Yeah, wow. And, you know, the, the impact on this country of a million military casualties... Uh, is transformational. Yeah, I, I think it's very hard for Americans to really understand the psychological effects long term on on Europe, on Britain of that war. I mean, I, I I'd be willing to bet you if you asked a hundred Americans, you know, did more. Uh, British servicemen die in the Great War or in World War II, uh, 99 out of 100 would probably say World War II, but that's not the case. No, nowhere uh, near. Yeah. Only a third. Yeah. Um, it's, like it's, it's just, I guess, our remove from the war, I mean, we were only involved in it 
basically for a year and then our troops are really only fighting for you know uh, the last couple months of the war in any sort of significant numbers yeah and yeah, um, yeah it, it, it's it's not america's war in right. america is, is is around the war and involved in the war but it's not actually engaged in it until very late um you know, America comes into what we call the Second World War about halfway through, um, and is much more heavily involved, necessarily so. Um, but yes, it's you know, it, it is a traumatic experience. If you walk down Whitehall, you go past the the, the memorial there, the Cenotaph. That is the central pivot of Britain's remembrance of war in general, mm-hmm. as well as the First World War. So at one end of Whitehall, we have Nelson's column to remind us that we are a great maritime and naval power. Uh, and we usually win sea battles. And down at the other end, we have the cenotaph to remind us of the cost of fighting major land battles. And the, you know, the symbolism and the synergy really shouldn't be misunderstood. You know, the First World War to to us is is, is the biggest war. It's the war that that shapes the way we think about war. Of course, the United States' biggest war is is a is an internal event. Oh, the Civil War, yeah. Yeah, Civil War it kills more Americans than, than the Second World War and the First World War put together, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, war, war on that scale is traumatic, and it leaves a mark. You know, we, the First World War leaves a mark in France because it's France's biggest war as well, and, and that, that impact shapes the way France acts in 1939-40 shapes away the British Act. As soon as they realize the French are, are not going to be able to carry on, they they go back home and they fight the war the way Corbett would have advised uh, until the Americans and the Russians are dragged in. Mm. The British do not mass, send a mass army back to the continent until the Russians and the, and the Americans are, are fully mobilized and are carrying the main burden. And, of the and even then, they're they're very hesitant about doing so. Uh, Understandably, yeah. um, the Prime Minister was responsible for a big uh, amphibious operation in the First World War that didn't mm-hmm. go very well, so he certainly doesn't want to be involved in another right. amphibious uh, operation that turns out to be a fiasco. Churchill couldn't have afforded that. So both personally and, and nationally, that's not going to happen. The British are not going to do that. Mm. Um, the operations they carry out down to December 1941 and from the sea are pretty much all about destroying enemy naval bases, enemy naval facilities, uh, and fighting for command of the sea. Mm-hmm. The greatest battle of the, of the Second World War is the Battle of the Atlantic. and It's a battle the British win because they have to. If they lose, they starve. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, that again doesn't, isn't going to make any difference to an American audience because the idea that being cut off from the sea would lead to starvation is <laughs> completely inconceivable. You know, what resources can you not get hold of from the continental USA without going by sea? Well, hardly any. Uh, in Britain, we don't, we haven't grown enough food to feed ourselves for the last 250 years. Yeah. You know, we, without imports, we can't, we can't live, let alone fight. We couldn't get Cadbury chocolate, so <clears throat> that would be tough. Well, honestly. you can now because you bought the company, so you could. <laughs> oh, uh, we did. Just switch. No. But it's not the same. Switch. It tastes completely different. Oh, it's, it tastes well, so I've, much I've better not, in, in Britain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't eat it myself, I must confess. Oh. I prefer other brands. But, um, <clears throat> you know, in this international globalized world, I'm, I'm sure you could switch that uh, that production over. Yeah, um, So that's, you know, that's ultimately, if you live on a very small island, you have to see the world in a different way to living on a very large continent. 
And that separates the British from the Europeans, but it separates them from, from the United States as well. Mm. You know, we, we, we see the world differently because we, we see it from very different locations. Mm-hmm. Um, we've already gone a little over. Do you have time to uh, for a couple more questions? Yeah, absolutely. Keep, okay. Uh, well, just because he came up in the, uh, we were talking a couple minutes ago, um, uh, Winston Churchill. What uh, <laughs> uh, Churchill and Corbett have a uh, 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 what's the best word for their relationship? But uh, uh, difficult. Difficult. Yes. Uh, relationship, and then yes. Um, uh, his subsequent Churchill's subsequent behavior uh, with, with dealing with Corbett's uh, criticisms of him um, uh, doesn't reflect very well on him uh, for a man in which uh, a lot of things do reflect well and a lot of things don't. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, but. And it, uh, so talk about yeah their their sort of their uh, yeah. Churchill and Corbett's difficult relationship. Yeah, this is a very interesting relationship because Churchill is one of the few ministers who's in that liberal government that starts the war, who's actually interested in war. He's he's been in the war, in, he's been a war correspondent in the Sudan. Um, a couple of years after Corbett, he's seen action in the Boer War as a correspondent. Um, He's interested. He reads. He's in. He's an intelligent, sophisticated, thinking politician, and he's concerned with war, which is unusual in his party at that time. He's first Lord of the Admiralty from 1911 to 1915, the period when Corbett is at his the peak of his powers in terms of influencing naval thought. Uh, he has read Corbett's great book, Some Principles of Maritime Strategy. And yet when he has to make a choice, he makes all the wrong choices as if he'd never read a word. So his Dardanelles operation, when he sends the Navy to try and go up to Istanbul and take Turkey out of the war, you know, it, it's absolutely opposed to everything Corbett has ever said, because it's a purely naval attack. Why is Churchill sending the Navy on its own up a very narrow um, sea strait um, under the, the fire of many guns through minefields without troops? Because he's the man who recommended the entire army be sent to France, so there aren't any troops for an amphibious operation. Uh, he then gets some troops, and they reinforce the attack on the on the Dardanelles in the Gallipoli phase, and that doesn't work either. Um, all of that against the advice and the expressed opinion of, of Corbett and many others. When Corbett comes to write the official history, Churchill is well aware that what the official history will say, however balanced and, and emollient it is, is going to damage his political reputation. He's not going to come out of this looking good. So he tries to block the publication of the official history. And he spends 12 months delaying uh, and getting in the way of publishing Corbett's first volume. He's ultimately defeated because Corbett has very cleverly anticipated this problem and has written the contract which the government signed with his publisher to produce the book. So they literally can't get out of publishing it because of the watertight contract that Corbett wrote for them, which is another use of his amazing legal skills. Churchill is so worried by the appearance of this book, which shows just what a mess he made of the opening moves of the war and a series of problems that happened on his watch for which he was wholly or in part responsible, that he starts writing his own book 
to excuse himself from the from those faults and it ends up as a book called the world crisis in six volumes and it is the biggest selling single work on the first world war ever so churchill saves his reputation by writing a book uh, in which he rewrites the first world war in ways that make him look like he was in charge and he denigrates corbett consistently both in his private correspondence uh, and in the way he treats treats him in the book uh, it's it's a truly appalling example of how one man's vanity can get in the way of the serious study of the past. Mm. But you sh- you should never trust a p- political memoir for inf- information about how serious business was actually done. Um, so Corbett, of course, had died by this time, so Churchill was free to say what he liked about him. And most of what he said was inaccurate or downright disparaging. He also traduced the reputation of Admiral Lord Fisher, uh, whom Corbett worked with very closely, because he too was dead uh, and therefore couldn't answer back. So it, it's a really nasty, vindictive, uh, and unpleasant Winston Churchill who we're looking at here. And this is a book that made him a lot of money and enabled him to continue his political career. Mm, was it Balfour? Uh, I'm trying to think... <laughs> called that book uh, uh, Churchill's autobiography disguised as a history of the uh, of the universe or something like that. Or... <laughs> yeah, well, he, I think I think what Balfour said was Winston has written a very big book about himself and called it the World Crisis, <laughs> yeah. which which if you think about it is the most you know lacerating criticism <laughs> of Churchill, a very big big book about himself. And of course he mm-hmm. went on did it again in the Second World War. Then mm-hmm. he won a Nobel Prize for that, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think he was furious. It was only for literature. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, for the Nobel yeah. Prize for literature. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, like I said, Corbett dies uh, early. As I said, this is a hundred years, and he dies in 1922, so we're a hundred years out from his death. Yeah. Um, but did he have any apostles, sort of, of, uh, of his strategic thinking? Uh, did he have a, a, a you know a Saint Paul or somebody like that? Uh, yeah. Um, was there anybody who kept Corbettian strategic thinking going in the wake of his death? Yes, there is. Um, uh, early in the book, I, I talk about his great friend Sir William Blake Richmond, who's a very prominent artist in the late uh, late Victorian period. Um, one of his sons, uh, Admiral Sir Herbert Richmond, a brilliant uh, intellectual naval officer carries the torch for Corbett's ideas right the way through to to the end of the Second World War when he too died uh, and writes very powerfully uh, promoting the the agendas that Corbett has developed. He does so with a uniform on and, and there is a difference between the two men but ultimately this is about statesmanship and maritime strategy. It's very much in, in Corbett's vein and Richmond sees his role as promoting these ideas and reversing the the continental military aberration of, of the First World War. What then happens, of course, is after the Second World War, Britain ceases to be a great power with the end of, of the empire, with the economic ruin of the Second World War, and the emergence of, of a bipolar superpower world. Britain was never going to be a superpower. Um, in a multipolar great power world, Britain could get by uh, as a great power. But once you get into the into the Cold War period, the, 
the resource base of the United States and the Soviet Union is just so far removed from what Britain can do. And the world is now no longer going to be ruled from the sea. Uh, once you have intercontinental ballistic missiles um, and nuclear weapons, um, maritime economic warfare looks remarkably inconclusive. Mm -hmm. So the leverage of the sea is, is in that sense greatly reduced at the highest level, still enormously important at lower levels, uh, but you can now escalate beyond it. You know, the economic blockades that crippled Germany in the two world wars, well, the obvious response would be to escalate beyond them if you have the, the capability. So what Corbett is talking about in some ways has disappeared. You know, Britain is no longer a great power. There is no sea power state which is able to operate at the highest level. It, what we have instead is a global Western-led American front-ended maritime strategic position. Uh, and the West here is a, is a cultural notion rather than a geographical expression. You know, right. Japan is, is part of the West, uh, just like Britain and the U.S., which is opposing the continental autocratic powers, as uh, much as it always has, uh, for whom the sea is a, is a threat vector. Uh, and who see the sea as, as a medium across which bad things are going to come, like liberalism and democracy and freedom. Um, and so a lot of Corbett's ideas work just as well today as they did in the past. Um, but you have to understand that the, the leading navy in the Western coalition isn't a Corbettian navy, it's a Mahanian navy. Mm. Um, the Royal Navy is still a Corbettian navy because it's very much engaged with the protection of trade and the maintenance of good order at sea. The United States uses the Coast Guard for that. Um, it has a warfighting navy and a constabulary Coast Guard. The British only have a navy. They don't. The Coast Guard in Britain is, is literally some men on the beach who throw safety lines out to drowning <laughs> swimmers. Uh, we don't do that kind of Coast Guard. Mm. Uh, because it's, it's innate in our navy that it is all, about all aspects of maritime security. Right whereas the United States Navy is very much a war-fighting organization which looks to other navies as its, as its primary mission. Uh, the Royal Navy looks to its day-to-day -day maintenance mission uh, and makes sure that it's ready to do the, the high-end mission should it be necessary. So there, there are differences, uh, but the Corbettian approach is still greatly valued. And... I know, for example, that the United States Navy uses Corbett very much as a way of, of getting people to see that what Mahan says is very important, but there are other mm -hmm. approaches to this issue as well. You know, Corbett is, is on the curriculum more so now than he has been uh, for a very long time. Um, the United States Naval War College was a very early user of Corbett's work. Um, he knew several of the senior officers who were engaged there particularly the ones who came to London during the First World War. So he had real influence on United States thinking, particularly in the interwar period, uh, when his books were more likely to be on the shelves uh, of the United States War College than they were of the, the British equivalent. Mm -hmm. Well, there's a lot of, you hear a lot of writing uh, about uh, how we're sort of in a period, well, the United States is in a period now with China, uh, sort of in the same position that, uh, Britain was with uh, Wilhelmine Germany, uh, the Kaiserreich in uh, before World War One, uh, yeah. where, the, where the British are trying to uh, figure out how to 
manage this rising um, rising power and that we're um, sort of a <laughs> shoes sort of on our foot now in the United States with with China um, so uh, as you said at the Corbett's been uh, uh, he's on the curriculum of the Naval War College uh, he's taught in the United States uh, are we sort of uh, closer now to that sort of Corbettian Corbettian world uh, than we have been in you know since uh, you know post World War Two? In some ways, I think we are. Um, the problem is is that that problem that Corbett was looking at here is Imperial Germany, which is by the time the First World War broke broke out. You know, we have to remember it was 43 years old when mm. the First World War broke out. So Imperial Germany is created, and within 40, within four decades, it started the world's most devastating war to date. Um, Communist China has been around quite a lot longer than that, and it hasn't managed to start a war yet. And I tend to think it's probably not intending on doing so. Um, Imperial Germany is an irrational state. Uh, it, it's propelled by ideas and, and enthusiasms which are illogical and co- incoherent uh, and is presided over by somebody who is illogical and incoherent as well. Um, I think the, the American-Chinese standoff has, has differences. Um, whatever the Chinese might like to say, the, the balance of strategic power is still very much in America's favor. Um, the underlying economic rivalry, and that's a key part of the Anglo-German standoff, is economic rivalry, uh, is significant. But uh, the resolution of that is in the hands of the American legislature. If they if they want to save their economy from Chinese attack, they're perfectly capable of doing so. It's just a case of whether they have the will to do it. So what we're looking at today is is yep, this question of, of rising uh, alternatives. At the same time, we're watching the former Soviet Union implode in the mm-hmm. Ukraine. Um, so one of the serious strategic rivals of the last 50, 60 years has done itself enormous damage in, in its very badly handled uh, and incoherent invasion of a, of a neighboring state, um, which is not, I think, going to encourage other large continental autocratic states to engage in hostile actions in the near abroad anytime soon. Um, now, there are lots of things coming out of, out of the Ukraine, and none of them favor the idea that attacking the West or its allies is going to be giving you a quick victory or an easy uh, success. So I, I think this year has, in many ways, changed the balance. I think the, the relative failure of Russian technology is, is a significant element in this. Mm. And the, the importance of Western technology in, in, the, in the Ukrainian war effort as well. Do you have any uh, Do you have any idea what the end game is going to be in in Ukraine? Uh, in Ukraine, well, <laughs> for me, the the obvious realities are that that some kind of Russian state will survive this, and within that, the Russian army will survive this. But the political leadership, I think, is will have to be changed. I think quite radically. You know, Russia cannot rejoin the international community um, under its present leadership. If you look at the the sheer volume of of 
war crimes uh, issues which have been raised against Russia mm-hmm. uh, during the war so far. You know, and their number is legion. The, the, you know, there is nothing in the you can't do this uh, under international law playbook that the Russians haven't done yeah. uh, on, on a, an industrial scale. You know, there is no way back for this regime. And if there is, then the civilized world uh, has abdicated its responsibilities to rem- to uphold any basic standards. So I, if if it doesn't go any better for Putin than it is going now, regime change is the obvious um, outcome. Uh, it's a question of who decides to change the regime and at what point. But Russia's only way back is regime change. And it's then a question for everybody else to work out what that regime change has to entail in terms of a settlement of the, the current crisis and and a settlement of a more stable post-conflict um, situation in Eastern Europe. We've already seen Finland and Sweden decide that they are going to join NATO. Uh, the Ukrainians obviously would like to join. Um, and of course, all of this has started the year before during the contested election in Belarusia when mm-hmm. Putin's security blanket was challenged and he was forced to put a lot of effort into keeping the, the dictator in power in, in Belarusia. And he's looking at Ukraine as, as essentially a vector through which destabilizing liberal progressive ideas can enter into Russia. So he was trying to close that, that space down and he's failed. At least so far he's failed. And the, the the current round of bombardments using um, drones and missiles, the R- Russians are running out of weaponry. Yeah. You know, they, they're using Iranian drones now. Um, not clear how long the Iranian government will be selling them drones at the current rate, <laughs> there, eh? given what's happening there. So we're, we're looking at you know, stress in regimes right across the, the autocratic world, um, only today, the North Korea has been firing off some more missiles mm. uh, because it desperately wants to be noticed. Uh, the Chinese response to Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan was both petulant and, and self-defeating. Made, it made Beijing look quite ridiculous. And they've now consolidated their system as not being a transitional leadership, but being an autocratic leadership. Um, so they've got a very big domestic set of issues to deal with. Uh, you know, Western liberal democracy isn't perfect, but it looks a you know it looks a good deal better than the alternatives at the moment. I'm sure. We have to hope that that uh, that persists. But do you think uh, when this all shakes out, do you think that those those annexed territories of eastern Ukraine are going to remain part of Russia? Crimea remain part well, of I, Russia, or do you I, think? Yeah, that's that's where the horse trade starts. First, first we have to get the Russians to stop what they're doing. Then we have to then we have to do some horse trade with them and, and try and get some kind of stable situation there. Um, you know, the Crimea, for example, is, is complex because ethnically it, it, it probably is Russian. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, are we going to determine ownership of territory by ethnicity or are we going to use international law, which is a, the one we usually use? Um, the Donbass is complex. Um, mm-hmm. Most of those people are are. Russian um, by language and culture, um, and they but they're in the Ukraine by by international territorial border. Um, some of them see themselves as Russian, 
dating back to the days of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Does that make them Russian? Um, you know, it's it, it's going to be difficult. These contested areas always throw these problems up. Um, I'm not sure that the Crimea is the key point. I think the key point is probably the Donbass. I think if the Ukrainians recover Kherson and, and can press further south, um, that will certainly put much more pressure on the Russian regime. Um, I certainly wouldn't advise anybody to in the Ukraine to send any troops into the Crimea at the moment because I think that's the one thing that might provoke an irrational response uh, from the Russians. But, it, yeah, I think it's, it would be very difficult to resolve that. But once the guns stop firing, it will be possible to talk about it. And I think getting the firing to stop would be the the first great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that will only happen with a different regime in Russia. Okay, well, I kept you way longer than I said I would. I apologize. We went on a little uh, <laughs> Ukrainian tangent there. Um, but just uh, one last question back to you. Uh, back to the book, back to yep. Julian Corbett. So uh, sort of the last question I ask everybody that comes on uh, the podcast, but it's basically, uh, you know, it's uh, what what would you like the audience to get out of this book or uh, yep. or what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take, to take away from having read the book? For me, the, this is about how important it is to understand the past in detail and to make sure that we don't assume that the the voyage by which we got to the present is either clear or consistent. You know, Corbett shines a spotlight on decision-making at, at a point, critical point in British history when there was another way. Uh, August 1914, the decision to go to France with, with an army changes the history of Britain fundamentally, and it's a slipshod decision made by some ill-advised people and some soldiers who simply can't conceive of another way of fighting the war. Uh, And after 300 years of British experience as a maritime great power, it's almost impossible to explain how such a decision could be taken. So we mustn't assume that the record we're given is the answer. We must challenge the record we're given and look at it again and if you find somebody like Corbett who can allow you to get into those decisions and explain what is going on in this process, you've at least got the beginnings of an intelligent debate about the realities of how countries think strategically. And a British way of war, of course, because Britain is a small island off the north coast of Europe, um, which has global reach. It has a different way of war to every other country on Earth. Um, but then... Ways of war are pretty much unique um, in all countries of any mm. consequence. There is an American way of war. It, you know, it's immense logistics. Um, there's a German way of war. It's about tactical engagement. Um, you know, so how do the British think about war? Well, this is it. And Corbett is the man who captures it and processes it and, and hands it over. And the fact that some people have ignored it, um, contradicted it, challenged it, uh, and, and tried to pretend it was never written is profoundly significant. Okay. All right. Great. Well, uh, before we go, is there uh, anything else you'd like to plug? Any uh, any appearances? Anything you're 
working on you want to let people know about or anything like that? No, I think at the moment the uh, the thing I'd like people to do is to, is to read the book and think about what it means and hopefully enjoy, as, as I did, um, spending some time in the company of a, of a seriously impressive intellectual uh, who has a commitment to his work, which I've rarely come across. Hmm. All right, great. Yeah, well, it is... Uh, it is a fascinating book about a uh, a man who, uh, and I'm pretty well read. And I'm, you know, not the smartest guy in the world by any means, but I'm, you know, certainly not the dumbest either. <laughs> but uh, you know, I hadn't, uh, like I said, I'd heard Corbett in in passing, or you know, you get a couple chapters on him here, or you know, paragraphs on him here or there in books, uh, you know about uh, World War One or, uh, or or Edwardian Britain or Victorian Britain. Uh, but I, I didn't know a lot about him, and uh, I'm very, very glad I read it because it's a, a fascinating uh, fascinating book on a really fascinating guy. And uh, it's also a very snazzy-looking book, too. With the, i, I got to applaud the, uh, the graphic designer, whoever. Uh, my hat's off to him because the, the cover is very, uh, very sharp. Uh, yep. Very sharp covers, so they did a great job in that. So yeah, the the book again is the British Way of War: Julian Corbett and the Battle for a National Strategy. Highly, highly, highly recommend it to everybody out there. And then again, uh, the author of the book joining us today, Professor Andrew Lambert. So, uh, Professor Lambert, uh, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast for uh, indulging me <laughs> going a little bit long today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you for writing the book. And uh, thank you for uh, spending uh, spending time with us here on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. All right. Great. Thank you. And again, if you like this podcast, please make sure and leave us a five-star review and share with your friends. And if uh, you have any questions or comments or uh, have books you'd like to discuss with us on this podcast, you can uh, reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And we do have our uh, Twitter account for the for the podcast. Uh, you can reach us there too if you have any again questions, comments, all that sort of stuff. You know, make sure you follow us, send us a DM, or you know, tweet at us, or all that junk. Our um, what is our Twitter? Our Twitter handle is at illbooks at i l l books. So yeah, make sure you check that out. And uh, that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye bye.